Well, welcome to the journey. And today we have uh, um, uh, an individual that is actually in uh, a couple time zones away from us, and she is joining us uh, joining us from the um, from out west. And uh, her name is Jacqueline Eckern. And Jacqueline, welcome to the journey. And um, this is a show that we've we started about two two and a half years ago, and it is uh, essentially about stories of transformation, stories of resiliency, stories of transformation, um, excerpts of individuals that have learned lessons along their life of failing forward, um, obstacles that have gotten in their way, and not only about the obstacles themselves, but more importantly, what did they learn as they um, uh, wrestled and worked through that obstacle and how that obstacle became, became their teacher so that they could have a, a higher quality of life and then give back to others. So, uh, and I know you, um, you have your own story as well as you're also a healer and a provider of uh, behavioral health care for, for other individuals. So, uh, so Jacqueline, welcome. And uh, so if you could just briefly uh, introduce yourself to the audience and then uh, we'll go from there. Great, thank you, Kevin, for having me on. So I am Jacqueline Eckern. I am a licensed professional counselor. I have a master's degree in psychology and counseling. And I am the founder of Eating Disorder Hope, an online community for um, really those struggling with eating disorders, their loved ones and providers, and also the founder of Addiction Hope. Um, I think they're pretty self-explanatory what they address. Um, and I'm married, been married for 20 years. I have two dogs and a wonderful son. <laughs> Great. And, and how old is your son? He is 17. Oh, okay. So is he a senior in high school or junior in high school? He is a junior. Junior. Okay. He's a okay. busy guy, sports and girlfriend and in the truck he's all yeah. about the truck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah of course <laughs> and so uh what sports does your son play uh football and lacrosse oh okay okay and then uh and then maybe tell us just a little bit uh what what city are, are you guys living at right now or 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 area people don't know yeah we're in a really cool area in oregon um just outside a bend called Redmond, Oregon. Okay. Um, it's famous supposedly for having sunshine 300 days a year, which is un unusual for Oregon. <laughs> it, it is not what people usually associate Northwest United States with the sunshine. Um, it's uh, usually associate San Diego at the other end of, uh, of the continental USA. But um, so, so is that, is that true? Is that, is it, is it 90% uh, sunshine there? Yeah, it is. It's it's beautiful here, and there's it's surrounded by mountains. It's really a gorgeous area. But it is true that much like Portland, where I grew up, it rains constantly, and I was used to it. But it does make you wonder if um, seasonal affect disorder or SAD does exist, because I know some people it's really hard on them. Sure. Yeah, and I know that just this year, it, it, and maybe it's a, maybe it's amplified because of the quarantining and of, of, of COVID. That it has been. I've seen our, myself as well as our therapists have seen more individuals with with greater impact of the seasonal affect disorder this year than I've I've remember it being in the past years. And maybe it's just amplified. 
um, because of uh, the restrictions regarding uh, you know, shopping and dining and uh, normal social activities outside of the house. And that's a whole other topic that we could probably get into. It's been at least in, well, for most of us in the United States, it's coming up on a year now that, um, that COVID has really been impacting um, uh, the majority of the, the continental USA and so let alone the world and, and all the things that, I mean, a year ago, I didn't know how to even do a Zoom link. Um, and so now it seems to be uh, a pretty, uh, pretty normal thing on a daily basis that I'm uh, doing digital, uh, digital communicating or video communicating. Yes, I agree. It, the, the transition has been huge and it's, it's been hard on folks. I think there's some good we can pull out of it for sure. Um, being able to use technology more efficiently for people that work from, you know, that have the option to work from home or in rural areas or even conduct uh, therapy or support groups online are some things that may um, stay with us afterward that are on the upside of this whole challenging time. Yeah, absolutely. So what does, what does Jacqueline do for fun? And, and maybe that's, maybe that's, you know, maybe that is qualified because of the past year, maybe things have changed a little bit with that, but what, do, what does Jacqueline do for fun if you have an opportunity to have fun? Yeah, thank you. Um, definitely spending time with uh, my family's a big deal and my dogs. A hike with my dogs is, is pretty, pretty happy time for me. And then I also dabble in painting. I, they've had no formal training, but I enjoy painting a lot. That's kind of in my zone area. Interesting. So, well, two questions. Uh, what type of dogs do you have? And, and how'd you get into painting? Uh, huge dogs. I have a golden retriever and a German shepherd. Oh, okay. We've at one point had four dogs when we lived in Texas. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> We're, I know it sounds a little nuts, but we yeah. give them the hard guard and give them all their shots and all that. But we we are just dog lovers. But we will never ever have more than two again, ever, because it was a blast. But dog hair city. Yeah, so. I bet. <laughs> I bet there's probably with, with with four big dogs that are shedding. There's probably absolutely no way to keep up. <laughs> Yes, and when my husband and I would walk down the street with four big dogs on leashes, I, I could feel people running to their windows in our <laughs> to talk about the nuts of the street. That was really funny. Sure. <laughs> so, so um, and, uh, just, I'm just drawing a blank. So I was going to ask you, oh, how did you get into painting? How did that all start? Well, you know, I, I loved art as a kid, and this might be relevant to folks that are watching. I'm really into art and painting and any type of art. And then uh, as I hit adolescence, I really ditched it and didn't come back to it till I was in counseling, getting over my eating disorder. And it was sort of like, what do you do for fun? <laughs> I was like, I don't know. And uh, I started taking it up again and it was very cathartic and helpful. And I actually had to force myself to do it because a lot of us with addictions and eating disorders, things like that have this just brain race going all the time. So to settle down and have a canvas and figure out what you're gonna do and look at your face was very mindful experience comparatively. 
So that's what got me back into it. And I really like oils and I spend a lot of time trying to learn from others. So I'll find a painting I like and, and try to sort of learn from their techniques. Obviously I don't sell it or share it with others, but um, that's kind of how, I, how I've taught myself. Interesting. Okay. Um, so, so let me, let me ask you a little bit about that. So growing up was growing up in Portland. So is that where you grew up? Uh, yes. Okay. And, and, and so, um, when you, when, when Jacqueline was, you know, a, a kid, teenager, what, what were you kind of into? What were, what were the things that you spent your time doing, um, as far as either at school, outside of school, all that? So as a kid, I, um, I played some sports. I read a ton, still into dogs, mm-hmm. had, a, had a pretty stable family life. Um, we moved every three years. So I learned to be pretty extroverted to adapt to schools. Mm-hmm. And um, my, I had trauma, though, in my childhood. I uh, was born with what they called one leg shorter than the other. You couldn't tell. But over time, it would have been, if untreated, would have been like, you know, a foot, (laughs) a foot's difference. So there was no way to leave it untreated. So I had to, starting at age four, go through a series of um, leg lengthening procedures that were pretty extreme where they broke the bones and put pins in and I was in traction and every day went through lengthening and it was done out of state and my family was in Oregon. So in one case, in one sense, I was blessed to be born in a country where you could get medical care for this and not be left on the side of the road as a defective kid. Um, on the other hand, it was it was very traumatic, and I think that trauma mixed with my personality style towards perfectionism, very anxious and, and easily depressed. <laughs> um, was was quite a combination and a challenge for me in growing up. And so, yeah, I, I can't even imagine. I know my uh, my daughter went through some things. Uh, she, she was diagnosed with scoliosis when she was in grade school and had to go through the back brace piece um, of wearing the back brace and all these exercises. And she was such a, a, a it still is this way, very disciplined, very uh, like a phenomenal student. You've told her to do something and she's, she, she's like a coach's dream um, because she'll, she'll do all the homework. She'll do all the in-between stuff. Um, But I remember that along with this other brace thing that we had to do to, she had an underbite and we had to, you know, do this thing where we had to twist it every night to help her lower jaw you know, uh, extend and, and, and be even with her, with her top jaw. So I can't even imagine what it was like with what you went through. Um, where, where did your parent, your family was in Portland. Where was the, the procedures being done? It was in California and there was a hospital there that um, had a doctor that specialized in this procedure. It was far more common in third world countries, interestingly. And they needed to keep me at the hospital for um, three months at a time to keep me in the traction and the docs to come in every day and turn the cranks to lengthen the leg. And my folks were a very humble means at that point. And they just felt like my, my dad definitely had to continue working. I had two siblings that needed care and my mom had to stay there um, 
to care for them. So I, I was alone the majority of the time. They came a few times to visit, which, which was great, but most of the time I was alone. Wow. And that started when you were four? Yes. Okay. And As therapist, sometimes I'm like, thank God it wasn't before I was three. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sure. Yes. Yes. And so, and how long did those surgeries and that type of therapy, when, when if you remember, when was your last surgery? When I was 14. Oh, so for 10 years straight. Yeah. Back and forth to California and different procedures, stuff went went dramatically wrong at times and I did end up with my leg being pretty it's it's a, we call it the z leg it's it if I had shorts on I'd just give you a view it's mm. it's pretty uh malformed now from all the surgeries and stuff so it was also living with that which um you know in junior high and adolescence and wanting to fit in and limping at that point I kind of learned to walk later better but at that point, it was a lot of limping, crutches, casts, and a somewhat screwed up leg, the way it looked. Um, so I really feel for your daughter, and I feel for all kinds of people out there that have grown up with stuff, um, with, with trauma, but also having to go out and feel abnormal and, and deal with rejection or, you know, fortunately, I, I did not experience bullying, but I know I've heard of a lot of cases of that just because you're more vulnerable. You don't fit in. I do know what it's like to be the last one picked in PE. And that was, that was painful. I know, I know what it's like to, to walk towards cool and junior high people and be all mangled. You know, those are painful things. And if I had to choose it differently, I certainly would to this day, but I do see how God has used these things in my life to create much greater empathy for me, for others, and, and to overcome, to go, okay, hand I'm dealt. How am I going to, how am I going to make this work and figure that out? And, and when you think, and, and a lot of times in the stories of when people have um, tr trauma and and in, in this case obviously has nothing to do with Jacqueline right like there was nothing that you you know that you did right to to you know even as we distort certain things you know being being at the wrong place at the wrong time or or doing whatever we sometimes will will take on that somehow we contributed to this trauma that happened and in this particular case um there wasn't anything that you did and that has its own benefit, but then it's mixed bag, right. Of, of that. Sometimes we internalize this idea that something's wrong with me. Um, and it was, it, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't any of my doing or another person's doing is just, so that's another message. And then other people who have trauma that they somehow tie themselves back to it as if I had some, some part in it because um, I've worked with a lot of uh, sexual abuse survivors and, and that they somehow uh, tie themselves into um, the, that they were to blame for being a victim or being victimized. Um, and, and even though they may not 
necessarily say that out loud. Um, but then in therapy, you find out that that was the hidden, one of the hidden messages um, that, that's underneath all that. And so when you, when you think of that, those, that time period growing up, specifically that, that, that 10 year time period, um, was there any particular person that stood out to you that was kind of that, that beacon of hope or a mentor or someone that, that stood out, that uh, stand out as a, a symbol of strength? Oh yeah, so many of them. Um, it, that is where God shows up in my opinion. And um, probably the most significant is my, was <laughs> my Italian grandmother who had an eighth grade education and had been divorced at 40, not by her own choice back in the day when you didn't get divorced and then supported four children on her own and started a business. And, and she was ruthlessly positive. Um, I mean, she, she wasn't blow smoke up your skirt kind of a thing. She could acknowledge that things were bad, but she could always see the optimistic side and also um, her faith. And, and she also had the benefit of unconditional loving, which is so paramount for us all when we go through trauma and struggles, because you, you just need that comfort that you're okay, it's not your fault, and that someone is there for you. And, and she provided that for me in many ways. I can just imagine that um, there must have been uh, and you, maybe you didn't even have words for it at the time, but there must have been a degree of loneliness in the midst of that aloneness that was happening. Um, and so I imagine stories, uh, reading became a companion, and um, and, and I guess I'm guessing art was also because um, it was something you could do while your legs healing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Those were big companions, and. <clears throat> Good and bad, right? Because I'm, I'm you and I could just talk about this forever. I bet as therapists, but intellectualizing, I thought everything through all day long. I mean, I was alone in the hospital room. Occasionally, I or often I'd have somebody else there, but in general, I, I was alone. There weren't friends or family around, and I would stare out that window and think and think about life, <laughs> like you don't do at that age or up until 14. So even now, people are like, whoa. I, let's just have a light conversation. We don't need to go so deep on everything, sure. which, I, which amuses me. And, and that's good and bad. Because, and I, I imagine others that have gone through things like this might have developed that technique too of entertaining yourself and, and possibly rising above the feelings of loneliness, the feelings of pain or even abandonment. Instead, I'll just stay in my head. I mean, and so much of my counseling and my, my work to recovery was about integrating all of that better. Yeah. But I would say that was a, a chief issue. And that has come to serve me very well in many ways, especially with ongoing education, learning to think critically. I really enjoy all of that. Um, what I still work hard to do is to be in the moment and to be aware of my surroundings and um, my feelings, how my body is, and not not go into my head as much as as I set up a pattern of doing. Well, I think 
I would I would think I know in my case not not for the same reasons, but be, because there was a lot of uh, aloneness during those time periods, and because of doing sports early on, um, for me there was this need to disassociate from pain, and and because there was a what I believed a higher purpose, and and what I was doing, and then and then the influence of stories. Um, that I, I read a lot when I was, was younger, one of, cause I was drawn to it and, and my imagination would be it, when I would read or when I would play, it was as if it was like a movie. Um, I, I remember being at a certain age and it didn't work the same way anymore. It, I, re, I remember that I remember, I can kind of even remember the, where I was at that day that my imagination to play with whatever the, whatever it was, matchbox cars or toy soldier, whatever it was, it, it the, the, the story wasn't as rich as it had been. And I had noticed it. And, and I, and I remember thinking, is this what getting older is supposed to, I wasn't, I, I, I always wanted to be older, but that moment of that the, it's almost like um, the, my imagination wasn't as crisp in my play as it had been, I couldn't get into it the same way that I had before. And, um, and maybe it was just a circumstance, but I remember that day and thinking something's changing. And, um, and again, I think it may have had to do with, you know, getting older, you know, later in grade school or whatever it was. But um, so I, so your grandmother had a huge impact on you and story and art had a big impact on you. And then you made a comment about that somewhere along the line and that this idea of uh, wanting not to make mistakes or this wanting to control and wanting things to, uh, you said perfectionism, wanting to be able to control the outcome of things. And then that switched into appearance. And, and so, so tell us a little bit about, you've told us about the trauma of going through all the surgeries in your leg, but it's, it sounds like it switched over to other things too. So tell us a little bit about that. Thank you. Um, I think it's a really important question when it comes to eating disorders. Not everyone is appearance oriented that develops an eating disorder. So I definitely want to state that. But for me, I thought, whoa, if I can get um, thin enough and if I can somehow be well-liked enough and in a leader in student council and get high, high grades and be as pretty as I possibly can, which is pretty hard to pull off, at least for me in junior high, because you're so awkward and acne. And, but I, I was committed, man. <laughs> I thought this will make up for my life. This will make up for the fact that I'm in casts and crutches and limping and, and I'll be okay. I'll, I'll be good enough. And by this point, I could not really compete in sports. There's no way. Cause I can't, I could hop, skip, jump, which pretty fast, <laughs> but I couldn't <laughs> run. And so, and I liked sports and I was really good in gymnastics. So there was a lot of that. So it hurt, hurts, you know, uh, egocentric hurts along the way, the things that you want to do and find your um, competency in the world, just doors shut a lot. So grades, appearance, everyone needed to like me. And um, if they didn't, I was pretty devastated. And it was a constant 
you know, trying to be perfect. And I think obviously that, that there could have been a better choice for me, but I hadn't had counseling or anything at that time. I came from a very driven family that uh, had achieved a lot in without a lot given to them. And so that in many ways was helpful to me in the pull yourself up by the bootstraps mentality. So I invested a lot in that, a lot in um, all the kinds of positive thinking stuff out there that we've all, or many of us have read. And I really thought that was the key. And then that fed into my coexisting need for control. I just wanted to control something. You know, I hadn't been able to control this leg thing or being left in the hospital or getting rejected in various situations because of it. And so if I could control things, which, you know, it was no miraculous healing from control. I still really work on it. My husband could tell you she needs more work, (laughs) but it's better. It's better. Um, And it's gotten better over the years as I've worked on that. And the mitigating factor in both those things is faith for me that, you know, I am not in control. In my opinion, there is an omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God. So I can let go a little bit, hopefully a lot. And then in terms of the perfectionism thing, he created me. I did not create me. I I did not mold the clay here. And it is, I am beautiful in his eyes good enough in his eyes and that's not always easy right because there's so much media and pressure coming at us all the time to look a certain way be a certain way to be acceptable but that is sort of the bottom core switch for me that got me towards recovery instead of just continuing to trend towards a a really severe eating disorder and self-destruction in my life so some similarities, not, not again, not because of I had a specific trauma um, or, or, or some type of uh, series of surgeries to try to fix something that, you know, uh, to, to, uh, so, that, so you could be more mobile and function that, from that aspect of it. But somewhere in there, it, it first, for my story was it first was tied into achievement. And then achievement then tied into uh, achievement tied into um, uh, recognition, right? And acceptance appear to go hand in hand. And then appearance, because it was all forming during those grade school, middle school, high school years, then appearance and also because of well, obviously the whole, you know, uh, you know, looking for a partner or want to be accept- acceptable for, you know, to someone else, um, that piece of it. But then of course, getting involved with bodybuilding, then it, you are literally judged on your appearance, which I still question at times the insanity of struggling with body dysmorphia and, um, uh, and, the, and then intentionally putting myself on a stage to be judged by other people with this subjective matter. Um, I laugh about it now. Like, what did you think was going to happen? <laughs> like, but, but I know for me, it was the belief that this was the thing that I could do better than other things. This was that, that activity, that sport was my ticket out of normalcy as if normalcy was a bad thing. 
Like average was not okay. No, and that just so invites um, self-compassion and deep exploration into self-compassion. You know, we're in our culture, we're so raised to be unique, to be in the US at least, um, to be special, to be above normal. And as if our self-esteem needs to be tied to that, and self-esteem is great. And it's great to excel if you have gifts and talents. I'm, I'm good with that. But what, I'm not, what, what I would encourage all of us to do is not think that we're just not good enough as it's, you know, being a normal human being is okay. It's okay to just have loving relationships, have character, be a responsible person and you don't need to super achieve all the time. I remember when I was in therapy initially, we used to joke that I just need to lay on the couch and eat some potato chips and watch TV, which at that time I never did. I've mastered that now, but and then I didn't. And with your story, there's so many correlations. The bodybuilding, and uh, I know you've shared a bit in, the, in your past about body dysmorphic disorder, I think we do have a lot in common and I can see how your achievement and recognition going out there to find healing, right? This inner child or deep part of yourself was like, okay, like a laser, I gotta find something in, in the environment to help me resolve this so I can get on. And that's in my estimation, what you might've been seeking in the bodybuilding to say, hey, I need to get this validation and then I will feel okay. Yeah, I, when I share the story as I talk about this, and again, there, I would not have been able to articulate this at the time. It was only later after Un, un, unwrapping things and uncovering things did I recognize that there was a there was a time period early on in life that I didn't know it but later I considered it being invisible um, uh, socially invisible regarding my you know my peers or not not with my family my family I had great relationships but but even within like the neighborhood or or especially within school and then it only did I know that I had been invisible because I had become visible and 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 I tied that into the sports and the fear of fear of becoming invisible again was that driving that driving factor um and 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 then i remember and and, and i like to kind of because it's typically when we start doing counseling and therapy at least back when i started doing it there was this idea of um learning to love yourself like you know especially with the things that i had i was wrestling with is and i remember thinking to myself what <laughs> what 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 do you mean loving knowing who I was and loving myself I kept going back to what did I do and based upon how I did it was based upon how I regarded the machine that got me there and um, so when you if, if you remember back in your early parts of your recovery those questions that those those counts are like psychobabbless people to ask, right? <laughs> of of loving yourself and being okay with being okay. Um, what what was your first response to those or other phrases that may have been like that? 
it just sounded like a crock. I was like, you know, you, what are you talking? At the time, I was a stockbroker living downtown, spending money I couldn't on all these fancy. I mean, I was into this whole role of that I hid behind, you know, very incongruent with my value system. And it was like, you're asking me to do something. So it was very hard, but the pain, the pain of the disastrous behavior and a lot of instability related to the bulimia and um, was great enough that I listened to her. And so we started slow. It was like, okay, um, I got a dog and I snuck my puppy into this seven story apartment and I snuck him down the stairwell eight times a day. I mean, we, and then I moved to a house where he had a yard and, you know, so, okay, I bonded again with, with dogs, which had been a central theme. And then I actually got rid of all the rented furniture and got like old pieces that meant something to me. And I started painting. So just very slow things. And I, at work, I would uh, bring slippers under my desk when I'm cold calling with bonds and all that and uh, put those on. And I would drink, it was still sugar-free, <laughs> but hot chocolate. And I would rock. I would rock with old quilts. And um, rocking was a big part of my therapy over four or five years where I, a lot of tears, a lot of gut-wrenching, just grieving, which also in many ways to this, go for it, be successful, seem like such a ridiculous waste of time and rolling in the mud. So it was always a struggle for self-compassion to heal and even go back a little bit so that I could heal further, be more present now. And let's just get on with things and achieve. And, and so that took a long time to unravel. But I think there is such peace and comfort in just being, not always doing. I mean, that is something I value more now than ever is being. And it, it was interesting just over the, over the weekend, we were at our lake home up in central Wisconsin and um, it was my wife, me and my wife, and then her sister, uh, who's a grief therapist that works for me here at KP and then her husband and then my mother-in-law. And, and so, so there's the five of us up there and somewhere after dinner, um, my wife had gotten this game where you just ask questions and, uh, and little that's the game. It's, it's just a conversation starter. So, and, and one of the questions, the way that we played it, I don't know how other ways of playing it, was that she would read the question, someone would read a question, but everyone had to answer the same question. And, and the question had something to do with what do you enjoy most about outside? And, or what do you enjoy doing most outside or something like that? And, um, and it, it was, I was listening to the answers, you know, one was listening to birds and the other one. And I remember uh, a few years ago being in my backyard and it was during like a fall day. So the leaves were still fully on and watching slash hearing the wind blow through the leaves and the trees moving. And it, it was like what, what, what I associate it with is that's God. That's like the, the spirit of God moving 
and just there was this dance that was going on. Um, and so when you were talking about being present, those are moments when I can be present when I'm out in nature much easier than um, other other times. And so how to how to practice that in other areas and not you know, before it had to, I had to go out to South Dakota or I had to go out to the mountains or I had to go uh, to, to the desert or the beach to be able to be present. And then I figured, okay, if I'm still living in Northern Illinois, I got to figure out how to bring the mountains to Illinois. Um, <laughs> Cause I can't live, if I'm not going to live there, I need to figure out how to bring it here <laughs> type of thing. But um, so when you, I, I want to kind of go back to, it, it almost like you were saying that early on those first four or five years working with your therapist, that she was bringing back, reminding you of things of, of who Jacqueline is by bringing you back into things that worked for you when you were young, like spoke to you. Yeah. Spoke to you or comforted you. Um, guided you when you were when you were young. Um, story, art, spirituality. So maybe maybe share a little bit about that. Thanks. That's a fascinating question, Kevin. So absolutely, you know, we have this theory now, or, or acceptance and commitment therapy is is really um, used a lot in eating disorders these days. And this was back in the day. I'm this was like 25 years ago this occurred that I was in therapy. So she didn't have this, but it's kind of what she did. She said, what are your, figure out your values. You're not, you're not living. I mean, she didn't say it that way. She kind of asked me and I answered, but I was living incredibly incongruently with my values. Now I wasn't acting out in terms of drugs or drinking or stuff like that, but I, I wasn't being true to myself in any way. I, I was very distant from my Christian faith. I, I was all about the appearance of things. So her um, guidance towards figuring out what I liked and, and I would do a lot of these self inventories in my journal, like, what do I like? What do I value? And, and you know, initially it would be kind of superficial but it got deeper and deeper. And I started thinking, whoa, maybe, maybe life could be good. Maybe I could have some fun. Maybe I could relax a little bit because it was exhausting keeping up the um, shell image that I, I was living. And maybe I could quit binging and purging all of the time. And maybe I could feel better physically and maybe I could gain some stability. At that point I was, you know, quitting jobs, starting jobs. I don't know why, but I was really flaky, moving apartments every six months. I mean, I just was not stable. Mm -hmm. And um, so in that work, getting in touch with who I was, what I valued and starting to pursue that um, gave me the courage to continue on in therapy go back and revisit some pretty deep pain about being alone without parents and people around and, and start exploring my attachment issues, which were significant. And the schemas, you know, the, the, the ideas and convictions I developed between four and 14 during trauma time, a lot of them were inaccurate and, and they're so embedded. And 
And sometimes the amygdala acts on those before we have any logic come through to mitigate that. So there was a lot of that. I was not a, a fun date relationship person in my 20s. A lot of that, she, she went through it with me and we'd be like, okay, you need to say you're sorry because you don't break up because of that. You know, I had this thing where I will leave you before you leave me. I'm just, so probably the job thing too. Now in retrospect, I probably was always quitting jobs because I couldn't stand that it wasn't perfect. And before they started getting on me, I would just move on. <laughs> anyway, I'm laughing, but it, it painful stuff. And, and going through all that is what led to such a better life. I mean, I've been married 20 years. I really like this guy. And um, I have a son and we have had a very stable family. And I've done the same thing since 2005 with these websites. So I guess 16 years. I've been a therapist or pursuing that for 20. And I have a very good relationship with my family, uh, my folks, which I did not have for a while there because of the issues. And um, I'm financially, I mean, I'm boring. And, and I was kind of the the screw up in our family once the eating disorder really and the underlying issues of the eating disorder for about 10 years and it was sort of like yeah we're not sure about her you know that she's going to be okay and that's amazing for one I think God provided some healing that was remarkable for me really remarkable. So for example, if you're someone who's gone through trauma, much worse than mine, maybe sexual abuse, or I mean, there's so many levels of trauma that are way worse. I would consider mine little T trauma compared to some of the big T trauma. For those folks, God can do amazing things. I mean, also the psychology and the commitment to the work, but the healing, like when I had a baby at 37, I could bond phenomenally, like as if nothing had happened to me. <laughs> and and that's, that's kind of miraculous. And we still have a really close connection. And anybody in therapy would say, shoot, with some of your abandonment issues and, and other things that went on there, I'm, we're not sure it's going to be great. And uh, it, it, it was and is great. And I consider that probably the best the best example of healing that is possible and hope inspiring. Even if you have train wreck relationships because of addiction and eating disorder, it can get better. It can get a lot better. If your career has been all torn up, okay. So accept it. You don't have to condone it or like it, accept it. Try to have compassion for yourself because this stuff didn't come out of a vacuum and work towards creating a fulfilling and meaningful life for yourself that you want to show up to that's based on what you value in life. And then maybe on a higher note at some point, trying to say, hey, what gifts and talents do I have that I can use to serve others and do good in the world? You know, I, th I think, you know, we've talked about spirituality and, and specifically Christianity. And as I have been on that, on my journey of, of my spiritual formation, there is, uh, again, stories that I'm now looking at differently today than I did originally, because I was looking at it through a different lens before. 
Um, same stories. I just see it differently now because it applies to me differently today um, from, from a more inclusive standpoint versus exclusive standpoint um, on, on one hand. And then it, it is much more, much more expansive, like, because the, so a couple of things that you said reminded me of not only my own story, but of clients I've worked with is that before I can be, go to that next level of self-awareness, I have to stop the behaviors that are interfering. I have to arrest the behaviors that are interfering with me being able to be present. I mean, there, there wasn't, I mean, there wasn't a lot when I was on that uh, treadmill of, 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 of needing to, and feeling like I needed to achieve and then utilizing my, my physical body to be that, to be that vessel or vehicle to do that. Um, there wasn't, there was times when there was self-awareness, but I didn't trust doing it differently than I'd been doing it because this is what had got me here. So I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't readily willing to let that go. And so to trust another way, um, there had to, there had, for me, there had to be a bottom that I had to hit where that, those actions, those behaviors wasn't working anymore or couldn't work anymore. So I had to, so the behaviors had to be arrested and then slowly as going through the grief, going through the anger, going through the different things, then there was an opportunity for other it's kind of like a light slowly piercing in, in, and um, I know for me, similar to yourself with art and spirituality um, was rediscovering things that had spoke to me at an earlier time period in my life. And that guided me then, and then, then re-engaging in those things um, as I was going through my initial, initial healing. Um, And like you, you know, we've talked about, we can, we can relapse, back into uh, that thinking, even if our behavior doesn't necessarily follow suit, but my thinking could, right? And, and I may, now I talk about trying to pause to discern what I should say no to and what I should say yes to regarding an opportunity or, or thing to do next. Um, before there was no pausing, it would just, it was automatically a yes, um, because well, God must want me to do this because the opportunity came up. Now I'm learning, why don't you pause and actually quiet yourself enough to ask, but more importantly, quiet yourself enough to listen. (laughs) Because I was good at asking. I shouldn't say good at asking. I got in a habit of asking, but I wasn't, I, I wasn't always quiet enough to hear um, what may be being said based upon the request. <laughs> I hear you. That listening component is really um, hard and super important in our faith. And it sounds like that was a key component for you in your journey of healing. It, it very, very much was because I, I had always, I, I remember there was never a time period that I didn't know God to be true and the stories of Jesus to be true. And then later, as I got introduced to certain things and there, then all of a sudden there was these expectations based upon the groups I was involved with churches. I was involved with that. You were supposed to do certain things. And I was like, 
okay. I mean, I, I get it. That's the social norm here, but I had already, I, I, some of those things I had already, I had been experiencing my whole life. So I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have that experience of, of then there was this, there was this date. So, I mean, I, I can, I can identify a certain date that I went to a different level of spiritual development um, after making some decisions, but I, I couldn't say there was a before and after, like there was a nothingness before and then a something afterwards. But, um, but it, it was the implementing it on a daily basis, not just on Sunday basis, implementing it throughout the day, not just in crisis, you know, um, or, or whatever it may be. I agree. So, so, so Jacqueline, I, 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 I'm curious now because you are, you know, there's a lot of different things that you do, um, you know, to try to help helping individuals out. And so when you think of, um, we were just touching on this idea of just normal life, right? Just everyday life as we're doing it. And we will either get triggered or we will find ourselves uh, because of the time of the year or because of other things going on, um, busy, right? I mean, a year ago when COVID first happened, there were certain buttons got, that got that pushed people out of their comfort zone. Um, and so they responded in that fight or flight response out of their character or the solitude that ended up coming, um, or I should say maybe not solitude, the isolation that came, uh, the social isolation that came brought up issues for some people. Um, where for some of us who long for solitude, um, it, 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 it worked out well, <laughs> you know, it worked out well for us, uh, for others, it brought up, it, it, it brought up the mirror and it, it didn't work out as well for you. What, when you set goals or set, uh, yeah, I get, we'll just use goals, set goals out there for you. What things do you do today to try to be more balanced toward achieving those goals than maybe that you've learned from the past? Like before, it sounds like you were just full speed ahead, you know, and go for it. How, how, how does Jacqueline uh, identify what, what it is and then persevere through slips, obstacles getting in the way, um, discouragement, whatever it may be? Sure. So yeah, I was in in essence full full bore ahead, eye on the tiger, <laughs> but it never really worked because there'd be this opposite extreme of I'm not doing that anymore. I quit, or I'm I'm binging and I'm purging for you know three days in a row, which is really hard on your electrolytes and your body. I mean, it it just it was not it was black or white. And so now, and I do set goals every, I mean, I set them at the beginning of the year and then I modify and review them throughout the year and I maintain a journal and I, but now my goals are more based on my values, mm. not on an achievement, which is really still a little odd, but so I value, um, spirituality. So I have certain goals like a daily Bible study and different things that I want to do, or I have a goal of being healthy, not thin, not fit, healthy. And, and what that entails, because that's really the value that I'm pursuing. It gets more specific. Like there's this thing called smart goals, which is very useful in a lot of ways, 
But for someone as extreme as me, I can just get too myopic on it. So I try to stay focused on the value I'm trying to hit. Um, I want a good family life. So speaking respectfully is one of my big goals because in when I'm stressed, I can take on this condescending voice and that does not enhance relationships. <laughs> Absolutely. So that kind of stuff. Um, and then I'm very compassionate with myself when I don't follow through which it is still so hard because it seems like we should just be able to set a goal and go for it and achieve the goal A to B. But for me, it is in almost, I really can't think of a goal that I've ever achieved like that. There's a lot of failing um, on some level and then getting getting back, as I said earlier, getting falling off the horse and getting back on. And in that process, the achievement is amazing. And what's key is to say, okay, that was a royal screw up, or I wish I hadn't gone so far off my goals, but here I am again, I'm back on. And what I can do to be kind to myself is I can look how far I've come. And I can say, wow, that's great. And, and that, instead of just judging myself, you know, and what, what you just said reminded me when I was taught about mindfulness, my, my miss, my miss, uh, misinterpretation or, or, or really kind of lack of understanding what mindfulness was. I thought it was this, this state of being. And when I was with my instructor was this idea of kind of what you just said is that there's a focal point, your goals that you're working toward, which is that focal point. And then, then when you are off your focal point, you become aware of it. And then you gently, non-judgmentally bring yourself back to your goal, your focal point. That actually is being mindful. Being in a stagnant state isn't being mindful. That's just being in a stagnant state, right? Um, the mindfulness is recognizing that when you're off course from your goal is to br gently bring yourself back and that it's okay, it's part of the journey. I agree, it is part of the journey. And I think anyone that reads up on mindfulness can gain so much um, help from it. Also, I think Kristen Neff has written a lot about self-compassion, that's excellent. I think um, even dialectic behavior therapy, there's these like, uh, dialectic behavior therapy for dummies. And it's good. It, it just breaks it down in layman's terms where people can start um, doing some self-education. Obviously, therapy and counseling is really crucial um, in, in most cases when you're dealing um, <clears throat> with behavioral health issues. But you, there's a lot you can do by what I call bibliotherapy. <laughs> So, so Jacqueline, I know as I'm looking at our time for today, just and and I'd love to have you on the show again because I think we could go into hundreds of different directions on different things. But regarding the things that we've talked about today, regardless of of your sharing a little bit about your story and your journey, um, if there was something that you would want to share with the listeners today, what would be something that you would want to leave with the listeners? Uh, do not ever give up on yourself. Uh, you, you can recover and regain possibly 
a better life than you had before. So even if you're in the throes of feeling like you've you've been owned by an eating disorder, by an addiction, uh, mental health issues that are dominating you, with help, with faith, there's so much hope for you. And it's just going down the path, following your journey. And then in that process, being very gentle with yourself and, and trying to find value in the journey because that's today. Making the most of your life now and, and not holding your past against you or getting too caught up in where you're going, but trying to find some some joy today and appreciation for who you are today. Well, thank you very much because that's exactly, I don't think you could, I could say it any better than, than that. If, if there was someone who wanted to get in contact with you, what's the best way to follow what you're doing and, and get in contact, you, in contact with you? I'd love to hear from anyone. And you can go to eatingdisorderhope.com. There's a contact form there and I get those emails and I will respond. And uh, also addictionhope.com are two great ways to get in touch with me. Perfect. Well, Jacqueline, again, thank you very much for being with us today. And um, I, I really appreciate everything that you're doing, not just in the Oregon area, but then obviously throughout uh, throughout your reach uh, in, in, in anywhere that someone can get a hold of you. But um, just for the listeners, I just want to just share with you, as Jacqueline shared her story, um, it, there are things that each one of us have gone through and, and that we all have different parts of our journey that we need um, to work through. And that isn't necessarily, um, we all have our own story and it's being able to be aware of that and, and recognizing what behaviors are interfering with that. They usually are the ones that are going to be rising up that people give us feedback about. So arresting those behaviors and then starting the journey of, of self-discovery. Thank you again for being with us here on the journey today and look forward to uh, talking with you again. Thank you, Ken.